this second phase has really impacted people around the world, especially those who, as she said, live hand to mouth, who don't have a, you know, a regular source of income or savings. And so we need to pray for the church around the world and in Bombo that uh, God would uh, sustain them through these days. If you'd like to help, just put Bombo on your memo line of your check or COVID or something, and we'll, we'll help them with their relief efforts as they're going through them. So, And we know who to talk to about Paul's wardrobe now. Direct, direct your notes to Jamie Duncan. <laughs> well, we're in our journey through Malachi this morning. Uh, we're discovering what is really important to God as we return uh, to life together. At each point, we have paused and tried to consider the implications of what Malachi has said to life today. We're currently exploring the role of, of doing and seeking justice in our lives. Social justice, I think, is a watershed issue, which is and could divide the evangelical church moving forward. If trends continue, the evangelical church could be overcome by a profoundly destructive and unbiblical ideology. And that path will do irreparable harm to our witness in the world and our mission. We have to confront injustice, but we must not depart from the truth as we do. Let's review a couple of definitions as we get back into that topic this Sunday. Some social justice definitions. A lot of different groups claim these days to be champions of social justice. Last week, we talked about social justice A and social justice B. We used social justice A to describe what the church has historically done in the world. What ancient believers did when they went to the, the, the Roman dumps and rescued the children, the mostly girls who were just tossed on the trash heap, and they brought them and raised them as their own. We use that social justice aid to describe what William Wilberforce did to overturn slavery in the United Kingdom, and Frederick Douglass, and Harriet Tubman, and others here in the United States. What Dietrich Bonhoeffer did in the Confessing Church as they faced systemic racism and systemic laws that, that were racist in the 1930s in Germany. What Christians do as we, as we work to abolish human trafficking or come alongside the inner city poor, or build hospitals, or, or upend racism, or protect the unborn. That's all social justice A, what we do. It's a broad stroke of, of biblically compatible work for justice. But in the last few years, the words social justice, the concept of social justice, has been redefined. Now it means the tearing down of traditional structures and systems because they are thought to be oppressive, and it desires just to redistribute power and resources from those who are oppressive to those who have been oppressed, just to achieve an equality of outcome. It is the banner flying over a group like Antifa who promotes physical violence as an acceptable means of action. It's become inclusive of groups that have, as their stated mission, to eliminate or disrupt the nuclear family. So this kind of social justice, Thaddeus Williams in his book called Social Justice B, it takes social justice and moves it out of a biblically oriented realm. Because when both Antifa 
on the left and the American Nazi Party on the right claim to be social justice warriors, uh, we, we, we can't support either. So we have social justice on one A on one side, social justice B on the other, and how do you know where to land here in the middle? And we're asking, what are the boundaries? What, what can we, where can we go? How do we, how do we work for social, social justice and yet not deny the, the faith once delivered to the saints? And the problem we face is not a desire for justice or social justice. The danger is if we undertake that, that, that quest for justice from an unbiblical viewpoint, we're, we're not going to be compatible to the Bible. And so last week, we asked two questions to kind of test us to see where we fall on this continuum. We asked, does our vision of social justice take the Godhead of God seriously? And second, does our vision of social justice acknowledge the image of God in, in everyone? This morning, we really just have one point. I know it's hard to play, believe, but it's true, but it's a long point, so don't get your hopes up. We're just going to ask one question. To add to these two questions, we're going to ask this question, does our vision of social justice distort the best news in history? How, we're trying to go here, but if our vision of social justice causes us to distort the best news in history, we're going down the wrong path. Think about some simple questions. How could you become the most miserable version of yourself? Or how could you become the most unlikable version of yourself? Or how could you become the most anxious version of yourself? Th these might seem to you like random questions, but they cut to the heart of social justice. Because the answers are clear. To become the most unhappy version of yourself, spend all of your time doing what? Making yourself happy. To become the most unlikable version of yourself, you spend all your time trying to make everybody else like you. To become the most anxious version of yourself, spend all your time and your focus and your energy on trying not to be anxious. So if the church wants to become irrelevant, what should the church do? Try to be relevant. You cannot achieve the things that are of secondary importance if you spend all your time making them the first importance. You cannot get these secondary level things if you've forgotten the first one. Because you only get the second things by putting first things first. Think about it. The woman who puts her own happiness first is always going to be dissatisfied with life. The man who makes his first thing, getting everyone to like him, is going to become very obnoxious. And the poor person whose first priority is staving off another attack of anxiety is going to feel constantly on the edge. Why? Because being well-liked, being happy, and being anxiety-free are not the first things. 
They are second things. They are byproducts, not goals. If you mistake a second thing for a first thing, you will lose not only the real first thing, but you are going to lose the second thing as well. Now, what does all this have to do with the gospel and social justice? If we make social justice our first thing, we are going to lose the real first thing, the gospel, and we're going to lose our quest for social justice as well. So what is our first thing? Well, we really don't have to debate that because in the Bible it tells us, Paul says, this is of first importance. This is it. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3, for what I received, I pass on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. First importance, chief significance, number one thing. The gospel, the good news is what God has done through us when he, sent his Christ, when he sent his son to die on the cross and make atonement for us. So does putting the gospel first mean social justice is an option? If you want to, go ahead. I don't think so. Because God does not suggest that we seek social justice. He commands us to seek justice. Jeremiah 22, 3, this is what the Lord says. Do what is just and right. Rescue from the hand of the oppressor, the one who has been robbed. Do no wrong or violence to the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. Do not shed innocent blood in this place. And when Jesus launches his public ministry for the first time, he says this in Luke 4, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Seeking justice is all through the scripture. Two weeks ago, we read a whole, we spent 15 minutes reading them all. I've made that case. But justice is not the first thing. The gospel is the first thing. Listen to me carefully. Because I say that the gospel is the first thing, that does not make justice optional in the Christian life. Because the Bible also commands that we tell the truth. Is that an option? The Bible also says that we give generously, that we love our neighbor, on and on. Are those all optional? None of those commands are optional. But none of those commands are the gospel. Because if we make them the gospel, we'll not only lose the gospel, but we will share truth without any grace. We won't be cheerful as we give. And our love for our neighbors is going to turn into just a self-righteous showmanship. Look what I've done. When the gospel is not our first thing, social justice becomes something entirely different. We have to carefully chart our course. I am not going to downplay the role and the church's essential role in in seeking justice. I agree. Social justice is not an option for us. But 
It is also not the gospel. Let me probe this a little bit. What happens if we make social justice not a mark of consistent Christian living, but a requirement of the gospel itself? What happens is this. You will never know if you've saved enough women from sexual trafficking to get to heaven. There's a huge difference between fighting the injustice of slavery to become saved versus fighting the injustice of slavery because you are saved. If we confuse the gospel with the command to help human trafficking victims, then the good news is no longer the good news. We're back into the hopelessness of a works-based righteousness. We're back in the first century with Paul speaking to the Judaizers who've said, yeah, they might come to faith, but they've got to be circumcised and they've got to eat kosher. To which Paul is very clear. As we've already said, so I say again now, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you have accepted, let them be under God's curse. Come to our day, and the problem's a lot bigger than circumcision and kosher eating. If doing justice is either identical to or part of the gospel, we've not just added circumcision to the gospel. We theoretically have added an infinite number of commands. Fight sex slavery in Thailand. Fight cocoa bean farmers and trafficking on the Ivory Coast. Abolish the car carpet looms of India and on and on. Now, I am not, I'll say it again, I am not saying that we should be apathetic about such injustices. No way. We should care passionately about the dehumanization of people who've been made in the image of God. And we need to work toward a more just world. I'm arguing that it is that making it an imperative a command to work against such injustices as part of the gospel or identical to it is to lose the gospel. There's an episode in season three of The Good Place, which is a synonym for heaven. They are quite confused as they're trying to figure out why no one has ever really gotten enough points and accumulated enough good stuff to avoid eternal languish in the bad place. See, in that show, there is no category for grace. You can only get to the good place if you accumulate enough good works. Michael, a superhuman being, observes that even buying a tomato counts as a negative 12.368 points. He concludes, it's possible, it's impossible for anyone to be good enough for the good place. These days, just buying a tomato at a grocery store means that you are unwittingly supporting toxic pesticides, exploiting labor, contributing to global warming. He says it is a game you cannot win. If social justice B has its way, we are in the same unwinnable game. Robin D'Angelo puts it this way. 
She says we should work from the knowledge that the societal default is oppression. There is no free space from it. Thus the question becomes, how is it manifesting here rather than is it manifesting here? Because she argues that everything is unjust, unjust all of the time because all inequality is injustice. Therefore, we face an infinite guilt. If everything is a problem, then we live in a constant state of defeat and hopelessness. We will never do enough because we have more sin than we could possibly atone for. And what does our culture want above everything else? Justification. Look at Twitter feeds. Read the anger. You will see it comes from a misguided quest for justification. I'm better than you. You're a bigot. You're a phobic. You're a fascist. My side's right. Whatever side that is, your side's wrong. You see? And you know who understood all of this? Martin Luther. Why? Because he saw it in his own heart. He said, although an impeccable monk, I stood before God as a sinner troubled in conscience, and I had no confidence that my merit would assuage him. I, I, I'm not going to get enough points. Today we would say, although I'm an impeccable activist, I stood before the woke mob as a sinner troubled in conscience, and I had no confidence that my merit would assuage them. The problem is, Luther was afraid of God. Today, people are afraid of people. What's the difference? Luther had read Romans 1. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. You see, the tortured conscience of Martin Luther found relief where? He found relief in the gospel. The infinite God erased the infinite guilt through the infinite grace offered in Christ. Follow it down its path and social justice be offers no grace, offers no forgiveness, offers no open door to paradise. Why not? Because they ignore the one distinction that begins a Christian worldview, the difference between a creator and a creature. At the top of the Christian worldview, we find a creator who isn't only just, but he is the ultimate standard by whom all of our actions are judged, but he is also the justifier of all of his creatures. 
Psalm 103, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. If we erase the creature-creator distinction, we don't stand before a quick-to-forgive God. You've got to stand before your fellow humanity. And instead of standing before God who is willing to take the nails in our place, we face a mob, an angry mob, ready to drive digital nails to crucify us for every sin we've ever committed against its always evolving righteousness. What we are slowly realizing, I think, as a culture is the impossible demand of justice and our irrepressible need for justification. What did Luther do before he found grace in God? He lashed on his back until it was bloody. He would sleep without a blanket through a German cold winter. He sat in a confessional booth for six hours a day. Six hours in a confessional booth. Can you even imagine? Why? Why did he do all that? So he could earn the title, very good person. Oh, but we're much more sophisticated. We don't do that, do we? No, but we virtue signal. We hashtag our solidarity. Or we keep silent lest somebody, you know, thinks we speak blasphemy. See, that's what penance looks like today. And what do we need? We need to experience Luther's sweet rebirth. We need to walk through the open doors of paradise. We need to realize the futility of trying to be good people and trust Jesus as all of the goodness we will ever need. We can never do enough justice to earn a not guilty sentence. But Jesus did and does. So you see, social justice B obscures that great news. Now, in the church world, there's a lot of doom and gloom in certain circles about the rise of this social justice B. But what if in the providence of God, the rise of social justice B makes our day a golden moment to be alive and to proclaim the gospel? Maybe this isn't a culture war. Maybe this is a culture opportunity. Because you see, before Justice B comes along, our modern culture felt very little guilt. But now, the West, we're all very guilty because we've never done enough. And we feel the weight of this infinite responsibility and this infinite guilt. But here's the difference. Social Justice B's standards are cruel because they're impossible to keep. They provide no redemption. They provide no grace, no salvation. 
They provide a game you cannot win. But think about this. You can't keep God's standards either, right? But the impossibility of keeping the standards of God is a mercy because it shatters our self-righteousness. In Luther's words, God is trying us that by his law he may bring us to a knowledge of our impotence. Augustine agreed a thousand years before. The law was given for this purpose, to make you being great little, to show you that you do not have in yourself the strength to attain righteousness, and for you, thus helpless, unworthy, destitute, to feel grace. What do we need? We need to run to grace. We need to run to the cross. We need to quit doing penance before creatures and take your infinite guilt to the infinite creator who alone has the authority to declare us not guilty through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That is the good news we must declare as our first thing to this weary generation. So now you think, well, am I just copping out? Am I trying to undo everything I've said? Absolutely not. Is all this gospel talk just an attempt to shirk the Bible's call to do justice? Wasn't that same logic used as an excuse to do nothing about slavery in the South or 10,000 other injustices? Let me be perfectly clear. Justice is not optional for the Christian life. Neither is telling the truth or honoring your parents or loving your enemies. Yet as essential as these commands are, none of them are the gospel. Keeping those commands cannot save you. Only Jesus can. None of them are what the Bible itself identifies as of first importance. So what then is the relationship between the gospel and social justice, A, the kind compatible to a Christian worldview? Instead of saying that social justice is the gospel, it is much more helpful to say that social justice is from the gospel. In Acts 2, you know the story, Peter proclaims the gospel, what Paul will later call as of first importance, he proclaims it to the crowds gathered at the temple for Pentecost. In the first century, historians will tell us that really only about 2% of the population in any Roman town would be genuinely comfortable in life. The vast majority were destitute and poor. Some historians say that maybe upwards of two-thirds of the population of the Roman Empire were slaves. There's a lot of social injustice in the first century. But when Peter, Peter preached, he never exposes the systemic inequalities of his day. Did he preach the gospel? Yes. Was social justice included in that gospel? No. 
Does that mean they shrug their shoulders at injustice? Absolutely not. Something amazing followed from Peter's proclamation of the gospel. By the end of Acts chapter 2, this new enlarged community of believers were doing what? Acts 2.45, they sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. That action itself was on behalf of the poor, wasn't the gospel. It wasn't in the gospel, it was from the gospel. The second thing flowed from the first thing, the good news of the death of Jesus and his resurrection. And the pattern repeats throughout history. When the Romans tossed their blemished babies like garbage, mostly because they were female, our ancient brothers and sisters went to those dumps and rescued those babies. Societies unwanted became their cherished children. They knew that the gospel that God had rescued and adopted them with they needed to put into practice. When a plague ravaged the Roman Empire, most people fled from the cities and into the countryside. But there were some countercultural believers who knew the good news that God had taken their sin-plagued, their, their, their sin-plagued lives and put it on the cross. And what did they do? They ran to the bedsides of the plagued to treat them with dignity. Oftentimes they would get sick and die. What have we done? Same thing is true with William Wilberforce and John Newton. They followed from the good news that God had redeemed us through the cross and the empty tomb. But you know what people will say? They'll say, Jim, but this gospel that you're proclaiming is just me holding up a white European gospel. That's the gospel of Luther and Calvin, Spurgeon. You, you know, you're, you're just kind of saying that's the gospel. Am I pushing a white, Western white man's religion? Trying to colonize our brains with theology of white supremacy? They will, they will accuse us of that. But here's the problem with that. The gospel that I hold as first thing is the same gospel that brings life and hope and joy to millions in Africa and Asia and South America and the Middle East today. It's the same gospel followed by Augustine, who, by the way, lived in Africa. And the church fathers like Clement and Tertullian and Cyprian and Athanasius and Cyril over a thousand years before the Reformation ever began. It's the same gospel that Paul, a Benjamite Jew from Tarsus, preached all over Asia Minor. And most importantly, it is the good news that Jesus, hardly a white Western European or American, proclaimed in the New Testament. To think that proclaiming the good news of God's saving act is an act of white supremacy is to rewrite history. It is to sacrifice the best news in the world. The news that so many weary, despairing souls need to hear. 
So do not sacrifice that message on the altar of identity politics. Number two, these are just application questions. Where do we go from here? I think there are two dangers facing the church today as we we wrestle with social justice issues. The first is to go down that all-consuming path of social justice B. The path renders that which is second as that which is first. If you go down that path, you're ultimately eventually going to lose the gospel. But second danger is to deny the church's role in social justice. And there is pressure to return to a position that all we should be about is proclamation. But it seems to me that our job is to drive out a bad worldview by living and proclaiming a good worldview, a better one. Over a hundred years ago, a segment of the church responded to cultural pressure to adapt by launching a movement that was known as fundamentalism. Fundamentalism, it did preserve the purity of the gospel message. It was an honest attempt to keep first things first. Fundamentalism prioritized the spiritual over the physical, evangelism over caring for the poor, full-time Christian ministry was a lot better than secular ministry. But what fundamentalism failed to do was to engage the culture. And since then, the church has lost its influence in the key institutions which shape our culture, education, the arts, films, literature, entertainment, law, business. You see, before then, that didn't used to be the case. Believers used to be the founders of world-class universities. Yale, Harvard, Princeton, all founded by believers. They did this, why? To influence the broader culture in a way that honored the king. But then we lost our way. Then our theology got reduced to numbers. How many are in your church? How many people got saved? How many churches have you planted? One writer says, if the church fails to disciple the nation, the nation will disciple the church. And yet even today, there is... There is the pressure to pull back, to double down on old school fundamentalism. A couple of years ago, John MacArthur and several others issued their statement on social justice and the gospel. It was a great warning just to stick with social justice A and stand there. But my problem with it is this. It unfortunately repeats the same error of the fundamentalist movement of over 100 years ago. See, rather than reasserting that rich legacy of biblical social engagement, the statement, it drifts into this old-school, sacred, secular dichotomy that pits gospel proclamation against social ministry. They write, we emphatically deny that lectures on social issues or activism aimed at reshaping the wider culture are as vital to the life and health of the church as preaching the gospel and the exposition of Scripture. Historically, such things then to be tend, uh, should be tend to become distractions that inevitably lead to departures from the gospel. I understand, but social issues and social activism 
mean we can't be pro-life? I mean, are we not supposed to uplift the poor? Are we not supposed to deal with the, with, the, with the addicted or the broken? Are we not supposed to fight against racism? Are these activities a distraction from the mission of the church? Really? Phil Johnson, a close associate of MacArthur's, has said that for evangelicals to engage in the culture, of, in, in the culture on the issues of life and poverty and justice and human dignity is mission drift. He argues they're a distraction from the central mission of the church. Just proclaim the gospel. So I think rather than calling the church back to an orthodox, biblical approach to justice, to cultural engagement, they're falling into the same error as the earlier fundamentalists. And rather than defending Christian social engagement with a seamlessness, a biblical relationship between proclaiming the gospel and applying that gospel to life, we can no longer afford to be defined largely by what we're against. That's how we came to be known. We can't afford that anymore. We can't be known as people just against social justice or theological liberalism or make your list of sins, list them there. That's what we're against. The crying need today, as it was over a hundred years ago, is to recover biblical, orthodox approach to justice and cultural engagement. We've got to engage. And while we do, we have to speak out against unbiblical social justice ideology. We need a comprehensive biblical worldview. Social justice, A, is far too important and far too central to the Christian worldview for, allow, for us to allow it to be compromised by social justice, B, as an imposter. Keep the first things first, but don't neglect what naturally follows from a life transformed by the grace of God. So where do we go from here? Well, next Sunday, I've, I'm going to be fishing. <laughs> That's where I go from here. <laughs> Ken's going to bring all of this and talk about, about the Barman Declaration and, and how, did, how did the church in Europe really deal with systemic injustice? It was another watershed moment for the church. How did they respond and what did it mean for them? Then it'll be VBS Sunday. Who knows what's going to happen on VBS Sunday? Don't be late. It'll be fun. And then we're going to come back here and keep down this course. I don't know where it's going to be. The Sunday after that, kind of a natural time, Bobby Gupta will be here from Hindustan Bible Institute. Wonderful man of God. So we have three weeks. Two Sundays, three weeks. So I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm doing a big ask this morning. I'm going to ask you in these next three weeks to let what we've talked about, not just in justice, but, but, but issues like, you know, how is God leading you to put him first in everything? How is he leading you to obey all of his commands? How is he leading you to do justice within your own home, in your marriages? And how is he leading you to seek justice in our world? So we're providing, and they will be on the tables on the way out or on the patio. It's a four-page personal assessment. How are you doing? Now that we're kind of back together, 
how are you really doing? You don't have to turn this in. If you want to share with me what, you know, in a couple of weeks what God is doing, I'd love to know and, and share some things anonymously. But what does the Word of God doing to impact our lives on a personal level? I do not do it in one sitting. You cannot do it in one sitting. You have three weeks to let it percolate. I kind of love that word right now. Just let it percolate. Consider how God is leading you to seek justice in our world. Have you sinned? I mean, the honest truth is I was raised pretty much a fundamentalist. It's only about the gospel. How does that which is first impact that which is second in your life? Is it time to get involved? How? What? Is it time to model to the world a biblical worldview? Because we have the only worldview that gives them hope and demonstrates grace. Where's God leading you? And then maybe we can determine where God is leading us. Do not leave without picking up one. You will get an email in an hour or so. It has a link to one, too. So you can, you know, we're going to, we got you covered online. You don't, you know, this is an equal opportunity for you to grow in Christ. So I hope you take what I've said this morning, put it into context. Let's pray. Father, we want to know your heart. We want to know how we use these days when, to be quite honest, I'd rather just run away. But you've placed us here as your church and your body that we might put first things first and not overlook the second things, but let those things flow out of a heart that's been completely regenerated, that has hope and has a message of hope for this world. In Jesus' name, amen.